Amen. Amen. Well, you guys can find your seats. It's good to praise the name of the Lord, right? And uh, we have the privilege of making the name of Jesus famous right here in our community, but we also, uh, we're a church that's pursuing strategic church planting because we want to see the name of Jesus lifted up and exalted, not just here in Fairfax, but around the world. And so uh, we have the privilege of partnering with the Great Commission Collective to see more gospel-preaching, life-giving, Bible-believing churches planted uh, that are really going to exist for the glory of God and get after the Great Commission together. And and so today, uh, we have this great privilege uh, of having uh, Pastor Darren Greenfield and his beautiful wife, Adina, with us today. And uh, come on up here, Darren. I'm so glad you're going to be here. Darren comes all the way from West Philadelphia, and uh, so we're thankful for them, and uh, and the church is being planted there September 15th, 15th, so they are launching in just a few weeks, so we're praising God for that. Thanks for being here and bringing God's word, brother. Thank you. Am I good there? Good, 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 good. How are you this morning? Well, it's great, great to be here. Me and my beautiful wife came down the road on Friday night, and we love getting to Virginia because Philadelphians have a uh, unique bond with the DMV, with the DMV. We love the DMV. We find a lot of commonality in the DMV, not New York, not Boston, not Delaware, but D.C., Maryland, Virginia. But on our way down, my wife and I were having a conversation, which we always have when we're heading this way, is that there's a certain part of Virginia that we cut off at. Right. We're trying to figure out where does the South begin in the Virginia? Now, I was talking to some people this morning and they say, once you get past Fredericksburg, you're in the South. Right. And then I talked to other people. But either way, we're glad to be here. So if you're from Fredericksburg and on up, you know us Philadelphians well. If not, I think you get better uh, along better with North Carolina and those people down there. Amen. We love you all the same. We love you all the same. Well, I wanted to come this morning and just show tell you what's going on in the life of our church plant. In Philadelphia, my wife and I are originally from Philadelphia. I grew up an army brat, so I spent time all over, and we were basically in Chicago for the last six years of our life before we came back to Philadelphia, where we never thought we would come back to. We thought we left home and we would be in Chicago or we would end up going to Houston or Texas somewhere, but God called us back to Philadelphia. And so I want to put a text in front of you this morning. It's going to be uh, John 4, verses 1 through 30. We're not going to get through the whole fourth chapter, but verses 1 through 30. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll jump into our sermon moment. God, there is power in your name. There is no doubt about it. As I sat and I listened to the worship team sing that last song, Lord, I was excited. Because that song was one of the songs that led my daughter to Christ. And God, I'm praying that that power that you that you had in her life, that power that you have in my life, that power that you have in the life of my wife is present in every way, shape and form here this morning. That it's been present through song. It's been present through giving. It's been present through communion. And now that it will be present in the preaching of your word. Holy Spirit, will you communicate with each and every one of us in this room? Will you say unique things to us that make us bring God more glory? Will you show us that the scriptures are alive? They're the living word of God, Lord. And when we consult them, it's like we are sitting face to face with God himself, face to face with Jesus as he walked this earth. Will you be with us in this moment, God? Will we praise and lift your name high? But more so, will we go out and live how the scriptures tell us to live after this? 
Will we courageously evangelize? Will we make disciples? It's in Jesus' name we pray and thank you. Amen. Well, about six weeks ago, our church plant began preview services. Now, the tricky thing about that is it wasn't our plan to begin preview services, but there was something going on in the spiritual climate of our core group, of our neighborhood, of our city that led us to start preview services. You see, what we were trying to do is we were trying to establish a core group and put the six distinctives into the DNA of our core group. If you can go to the distinctives, which you call your pursuits. And we were trying to drill it deep down in there. So when we finally launched on September 15th, that the people who walked in our door would get in touch, would see, would feel, would hear each of our distinctives. But as we went around West Philadelphia, where we are located at, and it's so funny that I thought Pastor uh, uh, Jeff was going to go into the whole song. The song and the theme song of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is actually where that uh, video was shot. And for the series is the school where we'll be holding service at. Overbrook High School, Will Smith is alum. My wife is alum. Will Chamberlain is alum. Many political leaders in our city are alum of Overbrook High School. And we're in this school, but we were having a challenge. We weren't getting people to join our core group. So as the small core group we had, we would gather in my living room. We would gather in local rec centers and we would pray and we would begin to troubleshoot. And we wondered, why aren't people coming? Is it something we're doing wrong? Are we not organized enough? Are we not getting the word out there enough? Are we not in enough of our local coffee shops? Are we not stopping people on the streets? Why aren't people coming? Well, it came to mind that many people that we had reached out to, they said, you know what, I come, but I want to come to your church service. Can you let me know when your church service is starting or where is your church going to be holding service at? When are you starting service? We want to come by. And we thought that question was just a, a question because they didn't want to get their hands dirty with the hard work. That they didn't want to be on the front end. That they were terrified of setup and tear down. It's hard, y'all. But then we realized there was something else hiding behind the scenes. We were sitting and we had been praying for over about a month and a half and we realized that a lot of the people that we were sitting down and having coffee with, even a lot of people who were already in our core group, were not in a place spiritually to do heavy lifting. And the reason they weren't in a place spiritually, believers and those that we were coming to on the street, non-believers, they wanted nothing to do with the work of God. But the reason why they weren't is because they were in a drought of hearing the gospel. That the gospel wasn't actively working in their life. And even if you're a believer, daily you need to hear the gospel. Every day of my life, I need to preach the gospel to myself. I need to read it in the scriptures because the gospel is what fills us up and brings us closer to God and helps us walk with God. And so we realized that if people weren't hearing the gospel, then we needed to start something that would allow them to hear the gospel. So we started preview services. And out of our six distinctives, we said three of them we just aren't ready to do yet. In order for us to make disciples, we need to make sure the disciples that are already here are healthy. In order for us to think about strategically church planning, we need to make sure that this church plant starts off right in its foundation. In order for us to do mass courageous evangelism, we need to make sure our people here have the gospel. So we need to set up something where we can just passionately worship, where we can fervently pray, and where we can boldly preach and hear the word of God. And so we were sitting in core group one day, and one of the young ladies in core group, she said, well, 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 Pastor Darren, why don't we just start church? And at the time when she said that, I was just totally against it. It seemed too ambitious. It wasn't in the church 101 planning book. And it just seemed, can I give you a true reason? It just seemed too simple. 
that we people who are planning a church overlook the fact that what people really want is church. So we started our preview services. We've been going there for six weeks. They are actually meeting right now. And one of the things we are pushing on our people, and I want to push on you this morning, is that courageous evangelism is not something that we just do when we want our church to grow. It's not something that we just do when somebody happens to bring it up to us over coffee. It's something that we implant into our DNA. It is actually a lifetime cycle of three steps. At Christ Center Church, we simply say courageous evangelism is this, meeting people where they are, loving them how they are, showing them Jesus and how he transforms everyone who surrenders to him. So through your whole life as believers in Jesus, you need to continue to do these three things. Meet people where they are, love them how they are, show them Jesus and how he transforms those who surrender to them, to him. Now, I know evangelism, for some of us, it could seem like a scary word. Some of us may not like it because it seems archaic and it's been used in some bad ways within the history of the Christian church. Some of us may not like it because it simply seems like something that we need to take classes for and we haven't done it. We don't feel equipped. But I tell you, we'll look today in the scriptures and we say that Jesus just simply did those three things with this woman at the well. He met her where she was. He loved her how she was. He showed her himself and how he's transformed not only her, but everybody who surrenders to him. This passage simply has one big idea, and the big idea is the theme of the passage. And all the theme of this passage wants to show us is simply this, that Jesus courageously encounters the woman at the well and offers her the living water of salvation. Like Christ Center Church, we like to give the big idea because we want to make sure we get the passage right, that we're exegeting the right way. But then we also want to give an action idea. We want this passage to give our people something to do. We want them to live like the biblical characters. We want them to embody what Jesus is doing. And if we had an action idea for this passage, it would simply be this. Those of you who know Jesus, your job is to courageously pour the living water of life out to others so they thirst no more. If you look at the climate of the world, people are thirsty for something bigger than themselves. If you look at the climate of the world, people are looking on ways to work through big major issues in life. If you look at the climate of the world, we are broken apart. We are split apart. We are torn apart. We have so many things placed in the middle of us. And if we were honest with it, the only thing that's going to fix it is God himself. So it's our job, every single person in this auditorium, if you know Jesus Christ, to go out and courageously pour. If you do not know Jesus Christ and you've come on the arm of a friend this morning or you walk through this door somehow, some way, not knowing how you got here, your job this morning is to search your heart and ask yourself, are you thirsty for something bigger? Are you thirsty for something more? Are you thirsty for something that you've been searching for in a ton of other places but have not found yet? Are you thirsty for something that only God can give you? And if you are, which I believe you are, then we know that it is in this living water. And so we see Jesus take this courage for this living water. In the first place, we see it is in John 4, verses 1 through 4. Now read with me. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. 
Now, many people who, who read this passage, they'll say, well, I don't believe the courage of Jesus starts until he actually meets the woman at the well and he begins to start a conversation with her. Because all he was doing in between verses one through four is he was leaving a tense conflict and he was on his way back to Galilee. And the Bible says he had to pass through Samaria. Well, this Greek word had in its Greek form mean that it was absolutely necessary for him. That as a Jewish person, if he followed Jewish custom, he would actually went around Samaria because of the hatred that was in between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. But Jesus, in obedience and intentionality, makes his way through Samaria because he understands that God is calling him to a divine appointment in a place where the people of his heritage hate. Now, this gives us a cue right here. Jesus does something. He steps in between strong ethnic racism and he doesn't pick a side, even the side that he's from. And what he does is he lifts the kingdom up to be bigger than them both. He lifts the kingdom up to be bigger than black and white. He lifts the kingdom up to be bigger than Republican and Democrat. He lifts the kingdom up to be bigger than rich and poor. And he steps in there because he knows that he is the only true answer. And he goes there and he has the courage to walk through Samaria, to be obedient to the calling of God, to be intentional. And he meets this woman at the well. And look what it says in verse 5. It says, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. Near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She notices the conflict in between them. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me and he would have given you living water. Jesus gets into this conversation with this woman. He steps up to her and he tells her, give me a drink. Now, not only was she a little bit taken back because he was a Jew in his ethnicity, but she was a little taken back also because he was a man that would ask something and get in public conversation with a woman. Now, we'll get to that a little later in the passage, but he says, give me a drink. And this woman is stuck on this conflict. And what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to help her understand that I'm asking you for natural water. But the only reason that I'm asking you for natural water is because I want to give you living water. And that's our first point right there. If you're going to courageously pour in the life of others, the only water that you need to pour is living water. Now, Jesus tells her, I want to give you this living water. Well, what exactly is this living water? This living water is a spiritual fresh water that, that, it, that helps you experience God's refreshing and inexhaustible gift of life. It's a water that gets down to the core of your heart. It's a water that lets you know that God in himself is good, that God in himself is merciful, that God in himself is gracious. And this gracious flow of water that Jesus is trying to give to this woman cannot be exhausted by any of her circumstances or any of her sin. This living water that he is trying to give her is a water that will rescue and redeem her. But Jesus says something to her here. He says something to her in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God. 
And this, if you knew the gift of God, gives us a clue to why this woman didn't understand about the water. So scholars argue, is, is Jesus saying, if you knew the gift of God, referring to himself as eternal life, as the only one and Savior? Or is Jesus saying, if you knew the gift of God, speaking about the Torah? If he's speaking about the Torah, Jesus is saying, young lady, if you read your Torah correctly, you would understand that it was prophesied and it was foreshadowed that there was somebody here that would give a living water that is better than the water that you have right now. Where do we see it? We see that happen in Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah 2.13 says, 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 says he, this was the foreshadow after the Torah, but it says in Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. He said, if you knew your Torah, and the reason why he's saying this to her is because the Samaritans, they hated the Jews so much that they didn't even want to have the same holy book as them. That they would take parts of the Bible and they would keep them, the Torah, but then they would take other parts of the Torah and they would redo it because they wanted to have their own identity. They didn't want to serve the religion and, 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 and the God with people who hated them. But Jesus is saying to her either way, if you read your Torah or if you knew who I truly was, that you yourself would have living water. And I hate to challenge you on this, but I must. I hate to challenge you on what kind of water we're giving to people, but I must. Because I believe some of us in the church right now, the reason why people aren't getting the gospel, the reason why people can't get the depths of who Jesus is, because Sunday morning, some people in the church are not standing up and giving living water. Some people are standing up and they're giving political water. They're telling people how to work through the issues of this world, but are not showing them to the next. Some people are offering prosperity water that promises riches on earth, but an unpaid debt in eternity. Some of us have offered lifestyle water. We have taught people how to be better parents, how to be better leaders and employees, but not, how, not have taught them how to truly worship God. We've offered fear-based water that has taught people to fear God and his wrath, but not acknowledge his grace and love. We've offered traditional water that has been more about keeping the history of the way that things should be done and not about the redemption of humanity and God and how God wants things to happen. My friends, if we are going to offer water to people, we need to offer living water. Living water is vital to our eternity and it nourishes our soul. Living water tells us about heaven, but also dictates how we live on earth. Living water is vital to every heart, to every household to every corner of the earth. It is the living water that God has intended humanity to have, but Satan, through his deception in the fall, wants to leave us all thirsty. If you are pouring into somebody's life, make sure that it's living water and nothing else. Check your personal motives, check your agendas, check your preferences at the door because all of those things can be put in right order if we give living water first. But if we are starting off with our motives, our agendas, and our preferences, I'm scared that a lot of people are missing Jesus. Well, the story goes on and it starts at, again at verse 11. And it says, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as he did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him 
will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Starts our second point. If you're going to courageously pour living water that is great, you need to pour living water that is greater than the world's idols. And some of you are looking at this passage and you say, where do you see her pull up an idol in this passage? And it's simply here in verse 12, she asks the key question that all of us has to ask when Jesus is in battle with our idols. She asks her, are you greater than our father Jacob? That you are offering me a water and it must be different than the water that our father Jacob has given us because you're saying this water is a living water. So there must be a different source that you get this water from. And if I'm going to believe in your water, I need to ask you a question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And the reason why Jacob has turned into an idol is because Jacob has blocked her from seeing Jesus. How? And I can understand how. That Jacob, years ago, has placed this well of water in this community where this woman can walk to. That daily when she goes to get water for her family, that daily when she goes to get water for herself, that there is something secret inside of her thanking Jacob that he had the thought, that he thought about his people enough to plant a well here. But what she does is she does what all of us do when we get entangled with idols. That she thinks that Jacob is really the source when Jacob is just a resource that God is moving through. That Jacob is not responsible for placing that well there, that God led Jacob to place that well there. And what happens in idolatry is we simply make that little change. We take the things that are really resources and we make them sources in our life. And how we know we make them sources in our life is that we have certain statements that go along with it. If you had a if I ever had statement, which says, if I ever had more money, then I'll be happy. If I ever get a promotion, then I'll feel adequate. If I ever was able to have children, then I feel value. Whatever is on the end on if I ever had statements means that we are looking at that thing as a source, that we believe that money can bring us happiness, that we believe that job positions and different things can bring us significance, that we believe that children can bring us value. And what Jesus is saying to her is the only thing that needs to be on the end of you thanking God for something that you believe a source is God himself. And so what she should be doing, where her heart should be, is she should be able to see Jesus and be able to say, you are the one that had Jacob put this water here. That you are the true source of me being able to drink. And you are coming to me saying that you have a different water that is not of this water, and I need to pay attention to it. But then Jesus not only is telling her and showing her that he is greater than her father Jacob, Jesus is telling her that he has greater water than Jacob was able to make available through this well. He says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. And he's letting this lady know, do you understand the routine that you come to this well, you get water, you go home, you drink it, you get thirsty again. You come back to this well, you get more water, you go home and you drink, you get thirsty again. 
It's a constant routine where you believe that this water can satisfy you and it is meant to satisfy you physically, but there's a deeper thirst that you have inside of you and only Jesus can give that water away. And he says, so I'm trying to get to something else here with you. I want you to understand that I am giving you a water that will lead you to never thirst again. That means once you drink of it, satisfaction is guaranteed. I was sitting in my doctor's office one time and she was talking to me about drinking water. And she says to me, are you drinking enough water? And I look back at her and I say, yep, doc, whenever I get thirsty, I'm drinking enough water. And she looks back at me and she says, you must not be drinking enough water because if you get thirsty and you're feeling it like that, you're already either dehydrated or on your way there. The goal is to have enough water in you that you're replenishing yourself with water that you're not getting thirsty. And what we have going on spiritually in the climate is that people are really thirsty. So what we do, because we've been there, we've been sinners, we've looked for significance in other places. What we do is we just dip our pail in different wells of water, hoping that something will finally satisfy our thirst. We've tried this well and it didn't work, so I'll go to this one. I tried that well and it didn't work, and I'll go to this one. And we go after well, after well, after well. And what Jesus is saying is stop dipping your pail in all the other places of water. Stop dipping your pail in the well of money. It's not going to make you happy. Stop dipping your pail in the well of power. It's not going to do what you want it to do. Stop dipping your well in the pail of sex and drugs and alcohol or autonomy to be able to choose what you think makes your life better. It's never going to work. The only water that works to heal the human soul, to quench the thirst of the human soul, is Jesus himself. And so if you're thirsty this morning, I would ask you to think deeply about where you were planting your pail. Where are you dipping it at? Is it in the well of Jesus Christ that that springs up to eternal life or it is somewhere else where you will get instantly thirsty again after you consume it? The way we know that this well quenches water is because Jesus says something to her in verse 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The spirit of God, the gift of Jesus, that once we accept to take this living water, that through his work that he's done on the cross for us, through the spirit that he's given to indwell in us, that there will be a wellspring of water that wells up inside us, leads all the way up to eternal life. So in Jesus, we find satisfaction and we never get thirsty again. This is why I am challenged by many believers who live in today's climate who believe that they need Jesus and something else. I need Jesus and this. Or I need to take my spirituality deeper by engaging this. Or I need to go here and read this. When the scriptures tell us that Jesus, Jesus, and only Jesus is the one that can give us water that can satisfy us. Why? Because it's a spring of water inside of us that's consistently welling up. Then we get to another good part. If you're reading your Bible and you imagine it like a movie, like I do, sometimes I see pictures in different scenes in my head. It seems as in verse 15 that this woman is coming to her senses. 
Because she says to Jesus, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And a lot of us are getting happy. We're saying, finally, she's getting it. We can close the book. This lady has found Jesus, but Jesus does something else. Verse 16, Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She asked for Jesus' water. Why in the world would he call her to go get her husband if she wants what Jesus has been trying to get her to accept? If she's coming after the water that Jesus wants because she doesn't want to be thirsty again and she doesn't want to come to the well, then why in the world would Jesus call to tell her to go get her husband? It's simply this. Jesus needs to deliver her from her shame. And that Jesus says, if you're going to accept my water, if you really want my water, then you allow me to deliver you from your shame, from your sin, from your guilt, from your pain. You'll give it all over to me. You can't take my water and hide parts of your life. If you're going to drink my water, you got to hand it all over to me. Now, scholars debate what Jesus is saying when he calls her to go get her husband, why he's doing it. They know one thing, that he's trying to convict her of her past, that Jesus does not only want our present and our future, he wants our past too. And the reason he's trying to convict her of that is because there is something that is going on in her past that she's tried to do on her own. There's this brokenness. There's this paralyzing effect in her past. And he tells her to go call her husband. And they're split 50-50 over it. Some say Jesus is telling her to go call her husband solely because he wants to convict her. And then other scholars say, no, 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 she, he's telling her to go call her husband, yes, because he wants to convict her, but he also wants to be a man that's in right standing with her. And, and in Jewish culture, you never offer something this big to somebody without, not, without giving it to their family also. So he says, go get your husband. Go get your husband. I want your husband to have some of this too. Go get your husband. Come on, bring your husband here so he can be a part of this. She says, I have no husband. He says, I know you've had five. You either had five because you've been with all these different men and you're getting divorced, or you either had five because in rabbinic code back then, they didn't see it as good for a person to get married more than three times. So either three of your husbands have died and you continue to get married, and the man that you're with right now, you're not married to him, or you've had five divorces and you're living with someone that is not your husband. And the reason why he's getting at this, because the time that this woman is coming to a well is a time where she doesn't have to be social with anybody else. That her reputation with people, with scholars believe, is so bad in her community that nobody wants nothing to do with her. That she's an outcast and Jesus is trying to show her, what I want to do is I want to get rid of your shame. You know, as I sat down with most of those people who were, wanted to be a part of our church but didn't want to come to our core group, I found out that there were things that were holding them up in life. There were things that were stopping them from hearing the gospel. There were things that were broken. And what was amazing to me is that most of the stuff that was broken, most of the stuff that was going on in their life were not things that were happening right now or were not things that happened in the immediate past. There were things that happened 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Now, hear me on this, that I believe that sin does not only affect us in the way that this woman is affected if we carry it out. Sometimes it's been done to us. And there are people who will call, and I believe truly are believers, 
but their growth as a believer stopped because whatever happened to them 10 years ago, the trauma, the pain that somebody has done to them or whatever they've done to somebody else has stopped them. They've tried to hide it from Jesus. And they believe that he cannot work his way through it. And what we have had to do as a team, a leadership team, and as the elder team that we have right now, what we've had to do is we've had to work people through their past. And we've had to ask them, are you ready to give it to Jesus? The reason why you're not growing, the reason why you're not feeling the intimacy of the gospel, the, 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 the thing that's standing in front of you and Jesus, the barrier right there is because there are certain things that you are not willing to give to him. And I plead with you this morning that if you are a person that is holding on to shame, holding on to guilt, some stuff that you've confessed and repented of or some stuff that you need to forgive others so you can grow in Jesus Christ, so you can get this intimacy, so he can continue to fill you with his living water, give it up this morning. I know it may be hard. I know it may be challenging, but Jesus already knows the feelings you feel about it. He already knows the hurt you're experiencing. He already knows where you're hiding. He already knows what you're trying to get away from. And what he is saying is the same thing that he's saying to this woman. If you want my living water, if you want intimacy with me, this thing has to go. So this woman does something here. She has a habit that I have. Do you notice in verse 19 what she does? Jesus says, what you've said is true. And then the verse 19, and the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. She tries to give them a compliment, and the compliment makes us seem that we're getting further, and I think we are. But that compliment is not actually an honest compliment. What she's trying to do is change the subject. Instead of going into this idea of a husband, she says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. And then she goes into 20 and she changes the subject. Our fathers worship on this mountain. Do you notice how she gets how fast she gets off her husbands? Oh, wow. This guy knows more than I thought he knows. So let me talk to you about where our fathers worship. And Jesus being an artist in conversation, he doesn't try to hammer her in. He doesn't try to push her. He doesn't exactly take her back at this moment. He gets her back to the shame. But what he understands is that she's working through this. Like most of us, if we remember our stories of coming to the gospel, I don't think many of us heard the story of Jesus or heard people talk to us one time and dropped everything and came to him. We changed the topic a lot of times. When people were talking to us about our sin or how we needed to depend on God, we say, yeah, I know. But can we talk about something else? When my wife is talking to me about how I need to stop leaving stuff around the house and I'm messy, I'm like, yeah, I know, but how was your day at work? Those points of conflict that we get to, we try to duck and dodge and get to another subject because we understand the pain and what it takes for us to talk through them. Or maybe sometimes we don't even want to have the, the conversation. So she tries this with Jesus and look what Jesus does. Verse 20, she says, our father worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking people to worship him. And what Jesus does right here is that if we're going to pour people a living water into the lives of people, we're pouring living water that teaches them right worship. So what she tries to do here, she switches the story on Jesus and she says, okay, you know so much. Well, let's have this challenge. Where's the true place where you worship God? 
Our people worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. Your people worship in the temples in Jerusalem. Where's the right place to worship God? And Jesus says back to her, this is why I love Jesus, because if you read the background, Jesus says, okay, you want to get sassy? Let's get sassy. You want to ask me questions like that to try to stump me? You want to make sarcastic remarks about what I'm saying to you because you want to switch? He says, let me tell you, if you really want to know the truth, if you want to get actually technical, the Jewish people know where to worship God because it came to them first. Salvation flows through them. So if you want to go textbook knowledge on where the right place to worship God is, let's start right there. The Jews have salvation, not the Samaritans. But he says this. But a day is coming and now it's here. It doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter, Jew or Samaritan. That God is looking for people to worship him in the right way. And it's not about the mountain that you worship on. It's not about the temple that you worship in. What it's about is if you get the Savior right, it's who you worship. And God is looking for people to worship him in spirit and truth, that God will be bringing the Holy Spirit to lead people into all truth on what right worship is. And we think we may not see this in our context, but I know I see it a lot in mine. Philadelphia is actually considered to be the biggest city with the most, uh, it has the biggest Muslim population of many cities. And the reason why it has the biggest Muslim population, and not only a big uh, uh, foreign Muslim population, but a big African-American Muslim population, is because a lot of African-Americans are caught up on this. They see Jesus as the white man's God. And so I'm standing before them and they say, oh, you traitor. And they call me all types of names. How dare you bring that over here? And we think that these kind of challenges are gone. But what they're saying is, I don't even want to learn about your God, because how can I worship a God that has done such, a, that allowed people to do such atrocities to my people? And what Jesus is saying to her is he's separating her emotional feelings and the things that she's made up in her mind about God, giving her the real facts and saying, but guess what? None of that matters. Because God is available to all. God does not belong to just Jew or Gentile. God does not belong to just black or white. God does not belong in Philadelphia or Virginia. God makes himself available to who he wants to make himself available to. And he does it out of love and grace. And all you need to understand is that the spirit of God will lead you to worship him in truth. The pluralism that we experience. The relativism that we experience, that people are going out here trying to find gods that they can worship, gods that sit in the little corners of their lives, God that make them feel good about the social stance and the agendas that they want to take. And Jesus says, get rid of that God and worship the true God. And he tells us that. And then the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who was called the Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. This is big here. Because they believe that Jesus must be getting to her because back then the Samaritan people didn't refer to the oncoming Savior as the Messiah. They referred to him as the Tassed. So her using this Messiah word is big here. She must be getting something from Jesus. She must be getting comfortable to this Jewish man. And Jesus says, to, uh, she says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. She's still trying to play this thing. So what she's saying is, okay, you think you're right, I think I'm right. When the Messiah comes, he'll straighten it all out. 
You think you know God. I think I know God. When the Messiah comes, we'll see who really knows God. And Jesus says to her, lady, you are missing the point. The Messiah is right here. It's me. Wait no more. You don't have to go figure it out tomorrow. You don't have to wait for anybody to come. Everything that we need to figure out who God truly is, is here. So if you are here and you don't know God and you're waiting for more evidence, it's not coming. It's here. If you're a believer and you're having doubts about who God is because you're being inundated with all this information or all these popular religions that are popping up all the evidence of who God is, you need to go no further. The Messiah is here. You know, I was listening this week, and I'm getting ready to close out. So as the band comes to a conference that I wanted to go to uh, down in Atlanta, and what it was, this is a conference that is full of debates about God. Not debates, conversations. They say have more conversations and less debates. So they were very civil, good conversations. But what shocked me is that during these conversations, and my wife and I were listening to some on the way down the road, and I mean, she was infuriated by some of the conversations. And I was like, okay, girl, you got it. I thought I was the pastor. All right, go ahead. Oh, hey, grace is available to all. Go, go ahead. And the reason she was infuriated is because so many people in our brokenness were looking for God to be so much more that personally appeals to us. That there are unanswered questions in our life. Why did God let this happen? If I can't get the answer to that question, then I need to subscribe to another God. And there was these terms that they were using. Like, I want us to reimagine the Bible. I don't need to reimagine the Bible. Because the Bible is sufficient within itself that all that God needs us to have and wants us to know is right here. But this closes out in a great way. Jesus culminates this thing in a great way. It says the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man. Who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. And this last point is the charge. Courageously pour into people so they can pour into others. Let me tell you why we don't need another God to come and handle the social issues. Because Jesus is doing it all by himself. The disciples come back and they're shocked because Jesus is talking to a woman in public. Back in rabbinic cold, rabbis wouldn't even talk to their wives, let alone explain the Torah to their daughters because they thought it was a waste of time. So this toxic patriarchy that's going on at the time, this sexism that's going on at the time, Jesus steps in the midst of it and he meets with this woman in public and the disciples come back and they are shocked. But nobody will say to Jesus, what you doing talking to that woman in public? And the reason why they won't say it to Jesus is because they've been around Jesus and they've seen him step in the midst of these things and they've seen him bring a new law. They've seen him lay down new foundation. They've seen him make the Imagio Day not only present in men of the day, but in women and children. And Jesus is resetting the culture. Any issue that we have in life, Jesus is the one that sets it straight. He lifts the kingdom up once again above patriarchy, above sexism. Above hatred and discrimination. But the bigger part of it is this. This woman that was once fighting with him at the well has now went back to the village where she came from. And she said, come 
see a man that told me all that I ever did. And we wonder why she phrases it in that way. And this is what I believe, that at this moment, she was feeling the amazing freedom of being free from her sin and her shame. And she understood that a lot of stuff that she did weighed her down. It was heavier than a cement truck on her soul. And Jesus has finally set that free. And that's what we need to bring to people in Fairfax. That's what we need to bring to people in Philadelphia. So I encourage you, Harvest Fairfax, soon to be Fairfax Bible Church, go out there and win your community for Christ. Give them living water that can satisfy them in a way that nothing else can. And Jesus will handle everything else. But what you rejoice over is when that husband goes back and grabs his family, that wife goes back and grabs her family, that person goes back and grabs their co-worker because Jesus has told them and freed them from all they've ever done. He's a redeemer. He's our savior. He is Lord, the only one that can give living water. Let's pray. God, your grace is sufficient. Oh, if I just think about the works that it's done in my life. Oh, if I just think about how you've transformed me. How you've wrapped me in your love and your forgiveness. How you've taught me how to walk forward in your holiness. How you've been patient during my sanctification as you make me holier and more righteous to look like you. Every good thing I am belongs to you. Every bad thing I am, you died on the cross for. You redeemed and I find forgiveness in you. This is a message that not only needs to be preached in here. It needs to be preached outside at lunch today, at dinner with our families, Monday mornings with our co-workers, coffee with strangers. Will you give us the grace to courageously evangelize? Because people are thirsty and you are the drink that they need the living water it's in Jesus name we pray and we thank you amen